I never got a grade for how I dealt with the owner. I never got a grade for how I dealt with the nurse. I never got a grade for how I made up the invoice, the bill. As a matter of fact, I never made an invoice on the university. I was a qualified veterinarian without knowing anything about people, how to deal with emotions and that kind of stuff. From Hampshire Will Publishing, this is Blunt Dissection. I'm Dave Nicholl. On today's show, I am joined by Dutch veterinary royalty and communication master, Dr. Roland Wessels. Roland graduated from Utrecht University with a doctorate in veterinary medicine in 1995 and entered the workplace in his native Holland. In 2001, he opened St. Anna 404, his own small animal vet practice, which he and his wife have operated successfully as an exemplar of veterinary business in Holland ever since. Away from the practice, Roland is best known for his work as a veterinary business consultant and in particular communication specialist. There are many skills needed by modern veterinarians, but as Roland says, vet schools don't teach you the most important one, how to understand humans. Hear, hear, say I. Safe to say that he is on a mission to change the way communication between humans is taught to veterinarians at all levels of the profession. To this end, he published his first book, The Veterinary Communication Handbook, in 2013. It is a great book. I encourage any vets to read. Now, in addition to his book, the forward-thinking Utrecht University Vet School, one of the best-rated schools on the planet, has boldly incorporated Roland's communications program into their undergrad curriculum since 2015. Kudos there to Utrecht in making a move that one hopes other vet schools around the world will follow. Now, just before we jump into the episode, I wanted to drop a quick word from today's show sponsor, the Vetex Thrive Community. VetX Thrive is a place where vets of all ages and walks of life can learn the non-clinical skills required to lay the foundations for career happiness and success. Members learn from the best tutors and have access to role models and mentors around the world. The aim? Simple. To engage and retain the next generation of vets so they too can have happy, healthy and long careers in veterinary medicine. So if you think that sort of support and training would be of benefit to you or to one of your team, then head over to drdavenickel.com forward slash vetx and click on the vetx thrive button to learn more. That link is also found in the show notes. Back to the episode. This conversation is already one of my favorites because Roland shared so freely and honestly from his wide-ranging and deep experience and knowledge. It's so crammed full of advice and insight, I know you're going to have to listen again and again. And happily for accent lovers, due to his soft Dutch accent, that should prove no hardship at all. So without further ado, I give you my conversation with Mr. Ventry Communication, Dr. Roland Wessels. I'm very excited today because we were sat... And I'll introduce who we is in one second. But we're sat for the first time ever doing Blunt Dissection podcasts from my hometown. So for once, I have not had to have a massive plane journey. No planes, trains, or indeed automobiles were involved. So I'm sat in my hometown of Brighton. If you've never heard of Brighton, let me set the scene for you a little bit. We're right on the south coast of England, as, as warm as it gets in England, as sunny as it gets in England. And Brighton sits right beside the sea. It's a very old Victorian town where the royal families of of yore used to come to take in the salty sea air that was good for their health. Um, The South Downs sweep away up behind us. There is a slightly overcast sky. It's clearing, slightly blue sky, nice 
sunny autumn morning opening out ahead of us and if you do hear any seagulls in the background then that's a sure sign that you are in Brighton uh, because the place is overrun by mobs of seagulls so if you do visit here never leave your chips unattended or they will be dismantled by our resident seagull population so with that said Roland Wessels welcome to Blunt Dissection. Thank you very much it's an honor to be here. I'm delighted that you've you've made the trip. Now you've been a busy man. You uh, you've just flown in from Barcelona. You live in Holland. Yes. So you've been busy. What's been keeping you busy, Roland? I've been lecturing in uh, Barcelona to my fellow uh, veterinarians, and I love to do that. So it's not really busy. When something's fun, it's just great to do. So I love my job, and uh, it includes quite a lot of traveling. But you see beautiful places like Barcelona and Brighton. So it's great. Barcelona is a, a wonderful place. Also a lot of seagulls there. There's a lot of seagulls there. It's right on the ocean. So Roland, for people who don't know you now, you are very well known in European circles. You have published a brilliant book called Communication and Practice, the Vet's Manual on Client Enthusiasm. And I've known about your work for a number of years, so it's, it's a real honour to actually be face-to-face with you for the first time. Um, we've spoken on the phone a couple of times. Um, I'm also happy and honored to be here. You know, it's, it's great to talk to you. So I'm really keen to just learn a little bit more about your background. I know you're Dutch and you seem like a lovely, lovely chap and you've got brilliant things to teach us all about life skills of veterinary practice. But I'm really keen just to take us back in time and, and learn more about who you are and what drew you in. Because in our brief conversation so far, what is abundantly obvious is your passion for two things. One, what you do, but also for this profession. And so I'm really keen to understand where that passion and that connection comes from, because you do feel very, very connected to this industry and what we do. So maybe take us back. When did you first get this inkling that you wanted to be a a veterinarian? And how did the pathway unfold from there? I grew up in a little town with quite a lot of agriculture. So cows and pigs and chickens were part of my upbringing. And I really enjoyed that. I really enjoyed being around with animals and people as well. As a matter of fact, my grandfather, he was quite a big dairy farmer. He got 12 children. And in those days, the smartest one got the farm. The other one went to college or did something else. And out of the 12, I think three became veterinarians. So it's a little bit in the family. So when I was a youngster, I would drive with my uncles and make uh, farm visits and I just enjoyed it so much. I enjoyed being on farms, being with animals. So I decided to study um, for veterinarian. And unfortunately, in the Netherlands, there's only one vet school. So there's a kind of lottery system. The first year I was not in. So I thought like, mm, okay, I'm going to study something else with farm. So I started studied pharmacy for a year. But then, fortunately, in the second year, I, I got in. So I did my studies I think, Dave, being a vet is having the most wonderful profession in the world. You know, we play with dogs, we we cuddle with kittens, and we get paid for it. Isn't that (laughs) amazing? It's super. An old professor told me one day that if you are on a plane and you want to sleep, don't tell your neighbor you're a vet. (laughs) (laughs) That is so true. If, If you want to stay awake, tell him you're a vet, because it's still a very popular profession. And it is, in my view at least, the most wonderful profession there is. So I love being a vet. Two sidebar questions. So you went to 
Utrecht University? Yeah, Utrecht Fed School, yeah, university. Now, correct me if I'm wrong, but that's certainly, in terms of both teaching and research, top three or is it number one in the world? Like, yeah. it's certainly top in Europe, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, now touching a delicate point, Dave. <laughs> <laughs> Um, the, the Faculty of Veterinary Medicine in, in Utrecht used to be always number one in the world on the Shanghai Index. But this year, we dropped, and uh, the Belgium uh, guys are uh, on number one now. So, yeah, so Belgium is doing better than the Netherlands at the moment, but that's a Shanghai Index, which is not completely representative for, say, the, the education. It's also based on the publications and the research. But it's a sign on the wall. It's a sign on the wall. <laughs> and that that's global so that's yeah that's global that's global so in the top 10 that would be like in in the past in the days when i studied it wasn't number one so that would be uh, like uh, uh utrecht that would be like cornell right that would be okay the famous uh, vet schools i think uh, there uh, definitely there would be an english school as well i think rvc rvc i think that's yeah the royal vet college is all, always in top five there we go i'm gonna read it out read it out right oh, now is this, oh, is this thank gonna, you so much dave is this thank mean? you for inviting me and then talk about the dropping numbers of utrecht I, university listen i i meant only praised by that but since you took it to the the league tables because i did not know this so we've got Ghent, yeah. Ghent number one I'm, I'm a university teacher in Ghent as well. You so, are, so, so, you can, so, so That sounds a lot, Roland, like you're putting on a different football shirt yeah, there yeah, to yeah, me. Yeah, 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 that's true, that's true. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We've got UC Davis yep. at Cali, Copenhagen number three, yep. RBC number four. Ooh, this smarts a little bit. Number five's University of Edinburgh. Yeah. So Glasgow's not even anywhere near that. That's my alma mater. University of Vienna, number six, Hanover, Germany number seven, you're not going to like it, number eight at all. You're not going to like, and I'm going to butcher the name, you're going to correct the name, but Wageningen? Wageningen. Which is the biggest uh, agricultural university of the Netherlands. Yeah, yeah, that's, that, that really hurts, Dave. I'm very, but I'm, on the other hand, let's be realistic. They do great, great research there. They are developing great things in China. They're really going forward. And I'm not saying that my university is not going forward, but we need to, to get on this bus and get back on top again. Uh, and then Barcelona, number nine, and Utrecht, number 10. Number 10. So where's Cornell? Cornell is, oh boy, let's see, let's see, let's see. Glasgow, just side note, 29. Yeah. And Calgary, also quite a famous university. Yeah. Cornell, interestingly, number 16. So there you go. So you don't have to feel too awful. There's some good company up there. And of course, that's, that's academic rankings, not necessarily teaching. And as you know, it's lonely at the top. So if you drop, you have a new goal in life. You have to give somebody else a chance. And to be honest, I think in Ghent, they're doing really great things at the moment. Right. Yeah. Okay. So let's come back to your career path. So talk us through your early veterinary career. And then, so you enter veterinary medicine, you've, you've gotten your place um, out of direct, And now... You said something interesting to me at the start of when we were off air just beforehand. And you said, you know, you struggle to get to be a vet, you struggle through university, and then you struggle as a vet. 
we were not talking about you at that stage. We were talking about just generally what we see happening with, yeah. with young yeah. people now. But did you have struggles as you were getting, you, know, you had some struggles with the first year and, and the, the, oh, the yeah. way people I had go. struggles getting in and I definitely had struggles in the beginning of my studies. What were the struggles for you? The struggles were that I was not concentrating on my study, but concentrating more on student life and I was also then, I, w I would phrase it like I was also then entering the University of Life right. beside the University of Utrecht. So we were partying too much and not concentrating too much on studies. Although I went to, to the school, I did my exams, but it was really sometimes I had to explain to my parents that the results weren't as good as they expected. But then in the last part, so after my, what, what is now called your bachelor, then I went like hell. Then I really, I saw the light. Then I saw the light at the end of the tunnel. Yes, I'm going to be a vet. And I was very motivated because then I started doing courses in tropical veterinary medicine. Huh, okay. And that really, um, that was something that was an eye-opener for me. That sounds really left field. How did, how did that come into your life? And when you saw the end of the light, it sounds like you saw the goal come into focus yeah. and then, bam, something clicked and changed for you. Was it the end line or was it the tropical influence? Suddenly you had a purpose yeah, that it, drove it, you it, forward. It was both, more or less. So I chose to go for farm animals, uh, animal production farm animals. And I saw the light because then... In the second part of the studies in the Netherlands, you get quite a lot of practical work. And I was not very good in studying and, and paperwork. And um, I'm not a textual guy, although I wrote a book. I'm, I'm quite a visual guy. So when I can put it in practice, it's much, much easier for me. So then it became much more fun instead of being in books, being in barns. I like that a lot. And then, by coincidence, but mm, probably most of your listeners will know that great things happen by coincidence, I had a few weeks in my schedule, a few open weeks, and I couldn't fill them in with doing extra pathology or whatever. And then, by coincidence, there was this course in tropical veterinary medicine. So I thought, like, okay, I'm going to subscribe to that because then I can fill my program and I can graduate. And from day one that I entered that course, I was struck by this dimension of our beautiful profession. Because in, in Europe, our husbandry, our uh, uh, the, the way we deal with cows and pigs is so state-of-the-art, so, so super specialized, I think personally even too much. But when you go to Africa and Asia, you, you really go back to the basics. If you are able to say um get a 20 25% more yield on a cow that's in africa or in asia uh, the difference between life and death yeah. yeah 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 so i was really struck by that and i thought like okay this is what i should do i should go to the developing countries and help there as a vet to guarantee people to have good sources of food that sounds a lot like you were connecting with a very strong why like the reason to help was that a harder thing to see in the more production-based medicine that you know the you can get lost in the numbers of when you've got large economies like the eu like the us and an, an animal very much becomes a unit of production mm -hmm. we are so distanced from the product oh, yeah. that appears yeah. on the shelves that i think people can feel comfortable with eating bacon because they see it as bacon not as pig yeah, absolutely but when you're in the system you actually don't necessarily see the benefit that that animal's life has given to the person who consumes that mm -hmm. as in the gift of life and, uh, yeah. sustenance 
But with the African, it sounds like you could connect to a, a greater purpose of why. Is that is that the case or was there something else going on there? I think the, the importance, for example, if you take cattle for certain tribes in Africa, like the Maasai, cattle is like money in the bank, you know, and the calves are the interest. Yeah, You don't have money there because you never know uh, if uh, the coin is going to devaluate or inflate or inflation uh, hits uh, hits the country. But if you have cows, you have cows and and you get some benefit from them. It's, it's like gold that does give you interest. Yeah, 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 yeah. And that's that's what it is. So it has a complete different uh, meaning for people over there. The farmers, the Maasai farmers will be uh, with their uh, herd the whole day. Yeah. They will watch uh, their cows. They will know them. They will talk to them. That's as a matter of fact, it's a bit like my grandfather used to to have cows, and I think it's quite interesting. And and by the way, you know, I was I don't know where it came from, but I was uh, uh, really attracted by Africa. I'm still very attracted by Africa. You know, uh, we lately sponsored an ivory dog, an ivory detection dog. When the clinic, um, I do own a clinic. I'm a clinic owner. Um, as a vet, of course, I'm married to a vet, and together we have. You are just a, immersed in veterinary. Med- they basically ooze veterinary medicine from every uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so uh, together we have a companion animal clinic, which is more her clinic than my clinic. But uh, you can end up uh, strange, uh, graduate as a, a vet in uh, tropical veterinary medicine and then own a companion animal clinic and also do something in communication. But that clinic was for 15 years now uh, our property. So we decided not to give a big party, but to buy a dog that is an ivory detection dog. We have given that to a certain organization who uses it to fight the ivory, um, the big ivory um, traffickers in Africa. What does yeah. an ivory detection dog do? That sounds like a wonderful gift. Yeah. What, what does that job involve? Uh, this one was the first, we think the first in Europe as well. Uh, it smells ivory. So the traffickers, they poach the animals, kill the elephants, cut off their tusks, and then they bury these for collection later? Yeah, yeah. So that's what they do. And they wait for the rangers to come in. They mostly booby trap the carcass of the elephant. And then they wait, they wait for weeks, for months, and then they dig up the tusks and then they smuggle them to um, mostly China. So they booby trap the carcass to kill the rangers, is that right? Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, it's a full-scale war there. Oh, yeah. It's, it's not like we think they're pouches. No, they, they, do, they do drugs, they do weapons, they do everything, everything. If there's money involved and they can make money, especially in Mali, they, they will do this. So the thing now is the rangers go in, they take Mitch... The, the dog's called Mitch. It's such a lovely dog. What, uh, what kind of dog is Mitch? Yeah, he's, a, he's a Spaniel. He's a Springer Spaniel. I was going to guess he's that. He's super fast and he's super, he has a super smell. And then, Super high drive. Super high drive. So so then they go in and most of the time the rangers ha- already have an idea who done it, but they have to prove it. So they send in uh, Mitch. Mitch will find the ivory in the tusks. Then they do DNA sampling to see that the tusks is connected to the carcass and they try to find the bullets they try to find fingerprints on the dusk and then they have a real court case nice so this is the way it goes so mitch is at the moment mitch is in holland to be trained again because they lose once in a while they lose the uh, ability that you have to train it and he has a super trainer in the in the netherlands who makes him ready for his next uh, trip what a wonderful gift that is and how realistic is it to be you know because you see now the market being flooded with lab grown rhino horn things like that which i think is an amazing way to use technology biotechnology now i'm just thinking you know, have a lot of listeners to this podcast uh, around the world yeah, i'm sure there's very many benevolent business owners out there with some money to spend 
what a wonderful cause like how does one get involved in supporting a project like that and 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 do you get feedback from the projects on how effective the that Mitch is being oh yeah yeah absolutely uh, as a matter of fact he's been uh, quite a superstar in Dutch media it was not our purpose at all but um, the media really jumped on it because yeah they, they really loved it but I think my message here is for my fellow veterinarians that you have a wonderful profession you make money in that you make a living but you make a living as Churchill would say by uh, what you get you make a life by what you give And uh, I think every vet in every town does things like I do. They will help um, the local horse club. They will help a school in in a project. And the thing is that uh, please do that because it's great for your reputation, but it's also it gives you a lot of energy. I think that's very important. And uh, um, show it that you do it. Show to your clients that you're not a vet only in for the money. No, you have a heart, a very good heart, and you select your own thing that you donate money, time, and labor to. And then for vets, it's far more easy also to deal with uh, price issues. People say, do I get a discount or do I get this or that? And you can easily say, uh, why? Why? We we do support uh, a good cause. We do support, but it's our dog and it's not your dog. That's what I tell the people. So that's actually wonderful. There are so many ways you can support local charities and campaigns, but I never ever thought about that as being a, hey, if you don't pay full price, then we can't put Mitch out there to stop the bad guys. So. Yeah, and people love it. People love it. People will donate. Once they visit our clinic, they will do a donation afterwards, and or they will say, keep the change for Mitch, or something like How that. How wonderful. That is such a great way of connecting your why, you know, what you do to your why and making that very visible. I, I think that's a, that's a brilliant idea. Yeah, because I think that's my why. I think I found out that my why is is the why of most vets. The why is making animals better, of course, but also making people happy. Yeah. And certainly make a living. Yeah. All three do state-of-the-art, evidence-based, tailor-made veterinary medicine and make animals better. Make people happy by using uh, human skills, communication, cooperation, um, behavior change, and make a living. As a veterinarian, you're also a businessman. In the end, you, you know, money make the world go round, also your practice. And I think as a vet, you should develop all three. And then you're going to have a very happy, healthy and funny life. So build your practice, train, be good at what you do. Be good with people, make people happy and focus on the business because it's got to make you happy as well. Three-dimensional uh, model. I like it. I, I, I wrote a blog called Find Shit, Fix Shit, Make People Happy. It's the same thing, oh, yeah, isn't it's it? It's the same thing. We are the same person and different sides of the North Sea. The, the veterinary profession is multi-dimensional. Sometimes I compare veterinarians and vet nurses to diamonds, and you know the, where the value of a diamond is determined by, by four Cs, carrot, cut, color, clarity. And I think the same counts for veterinarians. I think you're very valuable if you have four Cs, if you have clinical skills, as I said before, evidence-based, state-of-the-art, tailor-made. If you have the C of commercial skills, uh, if you have the C of corporation skills, because it is a it is a profession where you need to cooperate, cooperate with your nurses, cooperate with your colleague, cooperate with the university, and last but not least, communication skills. 
that's um, you, you asked about my life. That's that's what I found out when I graduated. So I went to Africa, and then the professor over there said, "You're not ready for Africa yet, Roland." Uh, I was full of plans, full of goals, and that's not the way to be successful there. So he said to me, he gave me a very wise advice. He said to me, "Go back to Europe." work and when you're 60 come back then you lost a little bit of your temper and a little bit of your energy and then and you have a lot more experience and then you really um, help you can really help the situation in africa so that's still one ambition to go there for a couple of years and see what i can do back to my career so i got into practice large animal practice and i found out dave that the species we need uh, we need to know most about is the human being And I was never, ever trained on that on the university. I was trained on knowing everything on dogs and cats and cattle and cows. And uh, I knew the intravenous propofol injection in the guinea pig, but I didn't know anything about human. Uh, <laughs> as a matter of fact, I don't know how you were doing during your exam, but my exam in companion animals was there was a dog on the table and the professor said to me, student Wessels, could I have your diagnose, please? <laughs> <laughs> and so I did. Oh, I did the full, uh, the full, um, the full research of the body and, the, and all the tests. And I found out the, uh, the dog had an enlarged liver. So I said, my diagnosis is the dog has an enlarged liver, and the differential diagnosis for that is. And I named the different. And then the professor said, "Student Wessels, you are now veterinarian Wessels because you passed." <laughs> that was my last exam. I never got a grade for how I dealt with the owner. I never got a grade for how I dealt with the nurse. I never got a grade for how I made up the invoice, the bill. As a matter of fact, I never made an invoice on the university. I was a qualified veterinarian without knowing anything about people, how to deal with emotions and that kind of stuff. So we learn it in practice. And to be honest with you, that's that's not a good learning school because communication is like veterinary medicine. It's a full science. You know, it has rules, regulations, and if you stick to that, you've been very successful. The thing is that we learn it by doing it, trying it, falling down flat on our face and getting up again. As a matter of fact, I come from Barcelona. I met, there was this, this professor who is, I think, 25 years or more in the business, and he was following my lectures. And afterwards he said, everything you told me now I now understand what I've been doing in the past. You gave me the structure that I had to find out by falling down and getting up again, and it took me 25 years. <laughs> so I'm so happy that new students are learned to get a structure in their communication and cooperation because it is a full part of our beautiful profession. Maybe the next topic to explore, both of you and I work very closely with the next generation of, of veterinarians. Absolutely. Absolutely. And there's no shortage of reports, evidence to say that, that the market's not responding brilliantly to the product for some reason, where the market or the next generation of vets, the product is their job in veterinary medicine. And we know the stats of, you know, 50% of doctors mm -hmm. by within two or three years of their career are at best voicing dissent and dissatisfaction with their career, at worst, are leaving, if not veterinary medicine, completely certainly practicing frontline of veterinary medicine. And we know the impact that's having for recruitment and retention is devastating for businesses. 
Why do you believe we have this problem now? Is this a new problem through your your lens? You and I have clearly had a different experience than many because you and I share a, a deep passion for what we do. And, and I'm, I'm pretty sure you put you, either you or I in the exam room. Neither of us go there very much. I was there last week. Well, this week and last week in my practice, you go in there in your practice when you're from time to time. I'm willing to bet that we both have clients that we enjoy interacting with. And I know I left my practice buzzing and thinking, man, I, I miss being in this exam room. What's the difference between the experience that you and I have had and the experience that people who are suffering? And more broadly, what do you see as the contributing factors to that? Uh, I think in, in the time that we graduated... For me, that was in the past century, uh, so a century ago. I think the market was different. I think the demands of the customer were not as extensive as they are now due to social media, due to all kinds of things. Pet owners have become more demanding than when I entered practice. It was like, oh, my dog is ill, could you please um, do make something. it better, do something. And nowadays, they will come in and, first of all, um, the dog is not a dog anymore. It's their child. Huh? The pet parentship phenomena is there. Their fur baby. Yes. Which will have caused at least 50% of listeners to vomit in their own cornflakes or in their lap in their car. But for them, and, and I think society has moved that way, uh, for them, it, it's something that gives them unconditional friendship. And people are looking for bonds and um in nowadays society, you know, people have the tendency to be more on their own. So they're looking for other bonds, stronger bonds with pets, with horses. I, I was told that in England, young women will spend half of their income on their, on their horse, for example. Amazing, amazing. So it shows that people really care about the pet. So when you really care for something, when your pet is your child, what do you want for your child, Dave? You want the best. Absolutely. Um, I think demanding is not the right word because uh, demanding is for me a negative word. I think the nowadays owner wants to be 100% sure that his animal is, is having the full wellness instead of going to the vet for illness. So the, the whole market is changing from illness to wellness. And I think there's the problem. The problem is we are trained in illness. Right. I see young vets being happy that they can diagnose a cat with kidney failure stadium 4 while the owner is not happy. <laughs> and they feel that they have failed when the blood test shows that uh, the cat is completely healthy. They feel ashamed. They go to the owner and say, sorry, 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 but we didn't get anything out of the blood exam, which is, uh, when you look from a client point of view, uh, not true at all. You got something great out of the blood exam. Now, I can tell you, your cat is completely healthy. Right. Uh, go home, have a cup of tea, because there's nothing to worry about. We were afraid it was developing kidney disease. All the parameters show it's not. We're so happy for you. This needs a complete change of mindset. And we are still trained in pathology and, and in surgical procedures that you probably will never do in practice. Uh, I don't know how it is in, in the UK nowadays, but our students are standing there in the, in the theater where the professors are operating and doing removals of glands in brains and that kind of stuff. You will never ever do that. And, and they get by, by, by being there, they get this feeling of that they have to do everything perfect. And in my view, perfect is the greatest enemy of, of good. Say more about that. 
perfect so perfectionism yeah that's one of those words that jumps right out at me we hear about this all the time so tell me your thoughts on perfectionism in veterinary medicine i think it's not only in our profession i think it's it's more in nowadays society i see it in my daughter i see it in my son i think because everything is now in the open due to social media everything everybody has an opinion on everything on everybody and everything has to be perfect because every photo has to look perfect and filtered super yeah filter 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 i see it in my children i see it in nowadays society I see it more in women than in men that they really want to be the perfect wife, the perfect mother, the perfect friend, the perfect everything. Personally, I think that is the reason behind that is that their mothers told them um, because the nowadays generation has mothers who try to be independent. And these mothers have told their daughters always be independent. You're as good as a man. And go to the university, get your degree, and make sure you're always independent. You make your own amount of money. You make it. So this, this more or less, that's only my theory. It's not proven. Um, is the seed in their brain to be the perfect daughter and the perfect, and it also um, uh, applies for for men, by the way. Uh, and I think that's nowadays society. You know, it's there's no time for being imperfect anymore. Yeah. So what's the impact of that within the veterinary frame? It certainly makes a lot of sense to have, and I see it, and it's very hard not to get drawn into that as well, because I am on Instagram and... You know, we've been photoshopping things and choosing our best photos I, to I show people for decades. I see you now for the first time in real life. And I'm ugly <laughs> as butt, right? <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Rod. And uh, I will not tell the uh, the listeners that there is a difference between the photos and the real David Nichol. Yeah, I'm, I'm not really six no. foot four, no. <laughs> like handsome at all. I'm, don't I'm tell them, don't tell them. Five foot seven, no, ugly them. fellow. Yeah. No, but don't you agree with that, that this happens and they want to be perfect? And you can't be perfect. When you graduated from vet school, you know, my first cesarean, it took me two and a half hours. And as a matter of fact, I cut myself. I, I still have the scar, you know, but I was so concentrated. I was full of adrenaline. And then after two and a half hours, you know, when everything was closed up and everything was clean, the farmer said to me, you're bleeding yourself. <laughs> <laughs> you could have nearly fallen fall on the floor like, yeah, oh, I've yeah, lost yeah, a yeah. pint of blood. I, I hadn't felt any th- and no pain at all because I'm absolutely sure that I cut myself in the beginning. Yeah. So I had been bleeding there for two and, so and a half two, hours. <laughs> yeah. So, no, this was not a perfect cesarean, but I learned a lot. Um, so I think that probably on university, um, the role models of these students nowadays are specialists, veterinary specialists, and they're very good. They're very good in this small piece where they really the master in. But to be honest, um, I think our students also need role models of general practitioners, you know, because you do everything. And and by having the specialist as a role model, as a golden s- standard, that they have to at least perform as good as a specialist, I, I think something goes wrong in their brain. They think they have to do, you know, they have to find everything on, on, on the first diagnose, you know, I'm... I'm 25 years in the job now, and I still, still, it, it takes me sometimes two consultations to get really the diagnose right. It takes time. These things take time. And I think they suffer from that. 
And I feel sorry for them because that's one of the remarks I like to make. Uh, you say that uh, I work with students and I think it's the most wonderful thing to do. I love to do that. I'm, I feel so honored and so happy. And so I feel great that I was given a chance to help my fellow colleagues for the future because they can learn from what I did wrong. You touched on a few other things there, I think. And actually, this almost circles back to the advice you got from your professor, which was, you know, you're going to Africa, rolling, slow down, slow down. Yeah, yeah. Don't be so, yeah. you're going to hit a wall there and nothing moves that fast. Yeah. The compression of time is a noticeable change or, or feature of modern life. From when I graduated, it would be a week to get back your pathology results if you sent them to the external laboratory to now it's the following day or same day. The instant gratification that's now available, you know, I remember when the internet came along, I was having this conversation with someone last night. The internet, when it came along, to download a photograph on the internet, it would download line by line and yeah, you would yeah, build yeah, it yeah. up and it only would take right, it is this, yeah, yeah, the yeah. dial-up modem. And you could wait for 10, 15, 20 minutes, but it was still amazing that this thing would appear at all. Whereas now if a web page doesn't download in two seconds, you're gone. And so we are hitting all these micro insta hit or facebook dopamine hits chasing around that gratification moment and looking for the likes tell us we're amazing give us that external validation it looks like being a very strong drug because uh, if i look at myself you know you 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 just suck into it and you'll become part of it look at my life you know um yesterday i flew to uh, barcelona i was there you you book in, in in the next flight to brighton then to amsterdam you know it facilitates also in in leading a fast life in in, in having a, a fast life you there, there is no time in between that you have to wait and i think waiting is very good being bored i had i don't know how how about you but i had my best ideas when i was bored oh yeah when i walk in the in the woods with my dog and i just then all of a sudden my best ideas pop up i've got two little areas to explore i want to and maybe we'll come back to this one in one second i would love to trade some failures with you to share some of those because i've I, as you were talking about this is area and it made me think of you know one of the life-affirming things i found as a young vet was hearing older vets talk about how epically they'd screwed up mm -hmm. and so that might be an interesting thing for us to share and actually talk through you know because we can sit here and sound like we have had the most amazing careers but i'll bet you like we have literal scars and we've also figurative scars from things that have occurred to us so it'd be really kind of interesting to explore that so the first thing i would explore before we go back to the the screw-ups is the ideas thing so you have good ideas when you're bored. My ideation happens in the shower, running, or on a plane. Or first thing I wake up, it's stupid o'clock in the morning, and it's just there and have to write something down. Where does ideation happen for you? And do you do anything to facilitate? And you're a thought leader, Roland. So part of your job, and arguably the most important part of your job, is to have ideas, to have opinions, to formulate things, to think deeply. Okay. And I, I actually think everybody could benefit from getting off of their hamster wheel and thinking a lot more, whether it's about their career, their purpose, their direction, their values, why they're doing things. So I think that's an important skill, but of course that takes patience and it's not an immediate gratification and you can't make ideas just happen. But I'm sure that you can foster occasions that make ideation more likely. What do you do in order to improve the quality of your ideas and indeed the quantity, if there is anything that you do? 
do you have a process? Yeah, yeah, I have a process for that. And to be honest, I had my greatest ideas when I was young. And I think that's the tip number one for the listeners. Write your ideas down. Find yourself a little book, a little secret book. I still have it. Nobody's allowed to look into it <laughs> and write these things down. By writing them down, you think, oh, this is a great idea. And you just lay them away for a couple of months and you read again. And by reading, you think, okay, that was a great idea, but maybe huh, I should adapt this or that. Once you start doing that, fine-tuning your idea, you open up. So you see your ideas in, for example, other shops. I get a lot of uh, ideas when I go to Ikea. The way they master the customer I get murderous ideas yeah, when I go yeah, to it Ikea. Could be. Yeah, that, that, okay. Yeah, but, that's, <laughs> but the way they master the customer journey is the best customer journey in the world. And um, it's not about whether you like Ikea or not, but it's a mass production uh, store where you feel special. And that's, that's great. So you, you try to benchmark your ideas by seeing, hey, is there something, something else done or whatever? So that's step two. Then step three is start sharing it with people, people you trust, people who are your friends. And the more they cr criticize your idea, the better friends they are because they want your uh, idea to succeed, although it feels <laughs> very hurtful, but they will give you good feedback. They will say, no, this is not that good, Roland, you should do that. People say, oh, great, can I be a partner? step away from them because they what they tend to do is grab your idea and make it into their own and then the last step in and then you start implementing you start doing tests feel free to fail every five ideas i have there will be only one that maybe is going to be successful so i often uh, compare it to planting seeds You plant seeds and you think, oh, these are going to be beautiful flowers. You plant five seeds and probably one never will, will grow anyway. And maybe one will really become that great flower that flourish and that you can say, yeah, that's great. So don't be afraid for your failures. As a matter of fact, all the big inventions uh, have come from people who first had great failures. And keep in mind, Dave, that's very important that every good idea started as a crazy idea. Yeah. <laughs> it seemed crazy until it was real and that happened, right? Yeah, but it was, if you would imagine that you would, when I graduated, you would tell me that in 25 years, everybody would have a mobile phone and I would say, ah, pff, come on, you know? And it will have the power to the nth degree more than the computer that would have powered the space yeah. shuttle. As a matter of fact, there was a guy one day and he said, I think, I years ago, I personally think that 264K is enough memory for every household in America. <laughs> he hadn't thought of Netflix at that point. Another crazy idea. Uh, yeah, The guy was, by the way, uh, the inventor of Windows. It was Bill. It was Bill, yeah. <laughs> At one point, he thought, like, if we can make that, that would be huge. So dare to dream. Uh, if you can dream it, you can do it. And write your ideas down yeah. and, and, and kill some. If, if it doesn't work, you know, don't go on with it just for the sake of it. If people say, no, it's not a good idea, then just, although you think it's a good idea, just bury it. Uh, keep it. I had some ideas that I introduced 10 years ago, and time was not right, and now I introduce them again, and everybody says, great idea. Do you have any, on, on the theme of failures, 
because again, I think for a lot of the next generation of vets, they, they fear failure. This perfectionism makes them fear failure. And when they inevitably have failure, then the imposter kicks in and that cripples their development. Have you got any favorite failures of your own that, that you would love to share? Oh, that's one I tell every time. It's, it's about, um, in communication, it's very important to ask questions and not assuming that you know what the other knows. Uh, so imagine, Dave, I, will be, I would be in my consultation room and I had made x-rays of a dog. And, and keep in mind that my practice, our companion animal practice, is just across the street of the university hospital, or the university human hospital. So this guy was coming in, and um, I said to him, um, come over to the x-ray room and I'll show you the x-rays. And I'll explain, yes, the black, that's, that's air, and the white... <laughs> And that's bone, and the, and and the guy said, "I'm a professor in radiology, <laughs> and your photo is underexposed." <laughs> and I, I, I really, I would, I would love to die there on the spot. You, know, you feel so, Please. so stupid then. But yeah, you know, I, I've learned that if you lose, don't lose the lesson. So in communication, I will never ever assume again. I will always ask questions. Last time somebody came in also with a, a, a dog, we made x-rays, uh, a, a dachshund, yep. okay, with a hernia. And um, before explaining to the owner the x-ray, I first asked, have you ever seen x-rays in your life before? And then he said, no. And then I would ask another open question. Okay, but by the way, what is your profession then? And he said, I'm an electrician. I said, oh, that's, that's great to hear because here's the power cable and there's, here there's something wrong with that. And that's the reason why the power doesn't get in the left leg of your dachshund. And that's, and then he said, oh, I'll walk to my car and get some stuff and we'll fix it. He, he, he would have totally got that. Like you, you found the analogy that would help him understand and get the meaning across to him, which is masterful communication, right? Yeah, I think that's one thing that I'd love to learn my, my uh, fellow veterinarians and students that I, I will say that in, in client communication, try to keep your four aces. Uh, the first ace is adapt to the other by asking questions. That's the second A. So by asking questions, the other one will give you information. What, what are your favorite types of questions to ask? Like, which ones work the best? Open questions. So I will start every consultation with two open questions on the owner. And it's it's also, you know, this is just a practical outroll of the Calgary-Cambridge model, yeah. which is quite theoretical. So we changed that into a step model, which is just the basis is the same as the scientific work is uh, Calgary-Cambridge. But if I teach my students, ask two open questions about the owner, they will remember better than um, try to find out what the point of view of the owner is or whatever. So number one, of course, is how are you? That's an open question. And then it's very important to really listen to the other one and not only listen to what he's saying, but also what, what his body language is saying to you. The other question, uh, Dave, is depending on what I see in the chart. You know, if you keep notes, for example, if somebody comes in and he will say, yeah, I'm in a hurry because my son has to do his final swimming lesson. I will make a note in the chart saying that the son did fine. So next time, in the next consultation, I can say, oh, by the way, last time you were in a hurry, how did the exam, the, the final swimming lesson go? Uh, so then you make the connection to the other one. It's not a trick. I'm really interested in my, uh, in, my, in my clients. It's just a way, if you write things down, it's just a way to remember 
what you could ask them. Or new clients, I would just a simple question. I ask them before we start a consultation, how did you get to our clinic? And they will say, oh, you were in the internet or I had a neighbor or whatever. I do consultations on Monday evening. I will ask, how was your weekend? And they, uh, I had this guy, he said, oh, I had to work. I said, oh, what kind of work do you do? He said, ah, I'm a DJ. So I said, oh, so you're, there was a party in the city. I was assuming then it went wrong. He said, no, not, a, <laughs> not in, uh, in the city. It was on Ibiza and tomorrow I'll fly to Rio de Janeiro. And then, so this was one of the 10 famous Dutch DJs. I, I didn't recognize him. Yeah. But by asking questions, I found out that this guy was circling the world all the time. And the best way to treat his animal was hospitalize it. So I said, oh, you're a very busy guy. And I said to him, the best thing we can do is then hospitalize your, uh, your pet and then take care of it. Do you want that? And guess what he said? Oh, Hell yes. oh, yes, thank you so much. And then I said to him, I need to have your mobile phone number so I can send you some messages uh, how your, your pet is doing. Came home, said to my daughter, guess what daddy has? <laughs> <laughs> But due to privacy legislation, I'm not allowed to do anything with it. So, so that's your second A, by asking questions, you will get a lot a lot a lot of information and then you have to listen and you try to listen on an active way active listening the, the art of active listening it took me years to master that but by active listening you're really interested in the needs and the wants of your clients and in the end as a veterinarian you're there to help that's your task you have to help people so if you don't know how to help ask them how you can help them And if you start doing that, so adapt to the other, ask questions, active listening, and your last A stands for always be NEC. NEC, that's my football club, but always be nice, empathic, and clear. Try to be in every con uh, consultation, conversation, try to be nice, like uh, your parents have, have, have taught you to, uh, to shake hands, uh, to, to smile, that kind of stuff, but also be empathic. Show that you're a human being who really cares about animals. Show that you feel about their animal. Say to them, if you have bad news, that I feel very sorry for you. I'm a dog owner too, and I feel if you lose your dog, it's, it's a horrible feeling. And then thirdly, be clear, be very clear. If the prognosis of a disease is, is bad, tell it. Don't chit-chat and say, oh, yeah, by the way, yeah, we got the lab results of your cat. And yeah, yeah, yeah. Now, be very clear. Say they are dramatic, and uh, for example, or, or be very clear. Say, I have very good news for you. Yeah. You're, you have a healthy cat, and I'm, I'm very happy for you. So, again, adapt to the other. Ask questions. Active listening. Master the art of active listening. Good communication. Start with listening. And last but not least, always be NEC. And if you start using these four aces in your consultation room, it's going to be fruitful. It's going to be fun. It's going to be successful. You're going to be happier, you, right? Yeah, yeah. The owner going to be happier. The animal's going to be happy. These relationships are the key to being happy, right? Fixing animals... We get to do that all day long. And there's a vet like, all these unhappy vets are still fixing animals, but they're unhappy. They're not happy because they're not connecting to the human beings around them, right? Yeah. Tell me more about the act of listening. So I feel like there's, there's more we could scratch under the surface there. Um, because people, you know, both you and I have spent a long while in the, in the exam rooms watching doctors do their thing. 
from your communications expertise background. Tell us more about the art of active listening. Uh, unfortunately, I never, I never um, learned that on university. And when I left, um, left vet school and went into practice, I was not able to listen to a farmer. As a matter of fact, I'll tell you a secret. I was explaining farmers all the time what was wrong and how they had to do. I was giving lectures to farmers. So as a matter of fact, later on, I found out they had a nickname for me. They called me the priest. <laughs> I was preaching all the time, saying, "Do if you have a downer cow, you have to do this and that, yeah, and it's yeah. a management issue." And, uh, uh, and but I forgot to listen to them. And then one day I got a book. Uh, there was a book of my sister on communication, and I opened it, and, it, and the, the first chapter was all about listening. And I was like, "Oh, I've done something wrong in my life. I have to learn to listen." And then I got acquainted with the five levels of listening. I knew that listening was a thing, listening and hearing. and But once I got the concept of the five levels of listening, then I thought, okay, what have I been doing? So there are five le levels of listening, and you can see that in your practice every day if you watch. So the first level is not listening. Look at it. When you, when you walk in your practice tomorrow, people are not listening to each other. They are in their own bubble. They, they're switched off. Right. Yeah. Uh, children in general are very honest about this. If I say to my son, what are you doing? He says, I'm not listening, daddy. <laughs> so, my, my daughter flips that around when I'm not listening and she goes, earth to daddy, yeah, earth yeah, to yeah, daddy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. That's, that's when you're not listening. Uh, so then you go to the second level of listening, which is performed uh, mainly by grown-up people, and that's pretending you're listening. Do you know that? You come home, you tell a story and you ask are you listening yeah i'm listening and you're not listening you can see that in your daily practice every day you can see doctors listening to the heart of the cat while the owner is talking to them and they will say yeah yeah that's right yeah that's right but they will not uh, hear anything i caused an overdose in my practice on medica i write about it in the book when i yeah, get yeah, I, I saw that yeah right uh, that was a class and, and i'll repeat back yeah. exactly what they said yeah yeah, yeah give this and i'm like Wait, and I replay the tape. I'm like, wait, oh yep. no. Yeah, we're all guilty. And we do that quite a lot. So that's level two of that's level two. pure listening. Yeah it, yeah, it also works in your marriage. Stop not listening and stop pretending you're listening. So we go to the third level. The third level is selective listening. So you listen to certain bits, especially the things where you're interested in, and then you start talking about that. So somebody comes in and you think, oh, this is going to be a cat with kidney failure, you know, and you only listen to the things you want to hear. You listen to it drinks a little bit much, it pees a little bit more, it has lost weight. All the other things around the things that the owner is saying, you're not listening. You're picking out the, the things that you want to you wanna hear. As a matter of fact, you also have selective looking. When I walk in the city, uh, with my wife, who's also a vet, I only see crippled dogs. It's, 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 Dave, it's, it's horrible. I don't see a normal dog anymore because, I, you know, you, you train yourself in listening to certain bits and pieces. And in selective listening, also called autobiographical listening, you listen to talk about yourself. For example, I come here, I say to you, uh, uh, how are you? And you say to me, uh, I had a flat tire. Then I start talking uh, about my flat tire. I said, oh, Dave, yeah, I had a flat tire last week and this and that. And I went to this uh, garage and I had to. So I, I steal something from you 
to talk about me. I see a lot of vets doing that. That's the party bore, isn't it? That's someone you go to a party and it's all about them. Yeah. They say, hey, Dave, how was your holiday? Yeah. Where did you go? Greece. And they don't care about your holiday. No. And uh, the word Greece, they hear the word Greece and they think, We're, I'm going to tell about my adventure in Greece. So they use you to talk about themselves. Not very good. Then the fourth level of listening, that's the first good level of listening. That's active listening. Listen not to reply, but to get information, and especially the information on the help question. So somebody comes in with a dog, starts talking, and you listen to help. And he's worried about the dog uh, losing weight, and then you listen to, I hear that you're worried about the dog losing weight. And in the conversation, you go on that and you offer help. Let me make a plan of action to get to the bottom of this. And then the last level of listening, that's empathic listening. That's not only listening to the rational bit, but also to the emotional status of the owner by looking because 80% of their emotion will be body language. So what you do when you listen empathically, you first listen and say something about how they feel, and then you go to active listening, how you can help. So for example, if you would come in and uh, I say, Dave, how are you? And you say, I had a flat tire. I would say, oh, I feel sorry for you. Starting the day with a flat tire, that's horrible. How, how can I help you, Dave? Because I'm a certified tire maker, you know? So first I connect on an emotional basis, connect to your feeling, and then I connect on an intellectual basis, first to the heart, then to the head. And that works. That works. It just makes so much sense when you put it like that. You know, it just jumps out. And it jumps out that that's what's missing in so many conversations between veterinarians and, and pet owners or between veterinary personnel, between between team members within the practices. If you start doing that and, and also ask questions, if, if somebody gives an answer, think of what does he really mean and ask a question to check that. For example, my son at breakfast table said to me, Daddy, what is your opinion on ISIS? And I was like, okay. So it's very easy to give an answer and yeah. say, yeah, I think they're, uh, they're not good or they're bad or whatever. Instead of that, I thought like, huh? What is happening here? So I asked him a question. I thought, why do you want to talk with me about that? And then he started saying, yes, we're doing this project on school, on terrorism, and I'd like to know more about this and that. And we had such a lovely morning conversation on terrorism, by the way. But, but by asking questions, I really got involved in his project. It's connection, isn't It's it? It's connection. So when I came home, I asked, hey, how did the project go? And have you, do you have more news for me? Because he had new things that I didn't know. And he started explaining about that. And then it becomes a dialogue, which is more than a conversation. Way more. We've got a lot of things to do today. Um, I could keep talking and asking you questions like quite literally all day. I'm going to come on to your book in a little second, but we have a little section of our interview where we do the quick fire round. And so you can answer these questions and they're, they don't expect highbrow questions here. So you can give any answer you want. They don't have to be short answers. They're just short questions. Okay. Unless it's more, so I'll try to be sure. Okay, all right. What do you see as the top three challenges if we crack will make things much better in the profession? <laughs> answer that as a short answer. <laughs> What is the top three? Challenges that we face as a profession. What are the greatest challenges okay, as a I profession? I think the mental health of, of veterinarians. Yep. I think we have to work on that because you can train your brain how to deal with empathy, altruism. Uh, so I think that's number one. I think number two is 
get our commercial skills right because it's it's not a hobby, it's a business. Yeah. If it doesn't make money, it isn't a business. And certainly, I, th- I would say that what I would like to get back is the veterinary family feeling. You, you talked about seagulls. Sometimes I compare the profession with seagulls. Um, they make a lot of noise. They make a lot of shit. They steal each other's chickens. They break each other's eggs because they think they're competitors. If we would be like geese, you know, geese, everybody's alone, but they will fly together. And every year they will fly from Africa to Siberia and back. Why? Because they they cooperate. They work together. And I, th- I think that's that's a main challenge, not to fight each other, but to find what we have in common and cooperate. Geese fly in formation. That's where the word comes from, information. They share information. And that's why that they can reach higher goals because they work together. So this would be my top three. All right. What do you do better than anybody else, a.k.a. what's Roland's superpower? My superpower? Yeah. Uh, I think that I can switch really quickly into creative mode instead of uh, reactive mode. So some people will say uh, the glass is half full or half empty. My brain works like I will say, "Where where's the tap? Where's the next glass? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Where's the water? Where's the water? Yeah, yeah, where's the water? And conversely, what's your kryptonite? What is kryptonite? <laughs> sorry, okay. sorry, I'm Dutch. Sorry, <laughs> kryptonite. That's a good point. He says epically failing the communication test as an interviewer. No, no, no. Sorry. So kryptonite is like the green stuff that kills Superman. So you've got your superpower, and then you've got you know Superman, the film. Yeah, Superman. yeah, 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 yeah. Okay. Yeah, uh, yeah, I haven't it's seen the tiny film, movie so. that didn't make it outside of anywhere into Holland. Okay. Um, so kryptonite is like the green stuff that kills Superman. What's the weak spot, and how how do you go about addressing that? So the kryptonite will be uh, sarcasm or um, that the what I call the yes but mentality. You know, I come in a lot of practices and, and, and people say, let's change this. Let, let's, let's find another way of doing business. And there was always people saying, yes, but, you know, yes, but. I, I hate that. I hate that. I'm more like the so what mentality. So what? Okay. So, yes, it's new. Yes, we are. Yes, and, and, and there are dangers. And, yes, we, we, we're not sure of what the outcome is. But let's try and go there. Because every good idea started as a crazy idea. So this is one of my favorite questions is, what's the best piece of advice you received in your career? I received quite a lot of good advice. I think that the best advice is to find a mentor that you can that helps you through life. And in the different stages of your life, that can, could be different mentors, but... And these mentors will give you all the time good advice. So, so for me, there's not like uh, one super advice. I, I'm grateful. I'm very grateful that I had great mentors, great people who helped me when I struggled. The main thing what a good mentor will do is show faith in you. Say, you can do it, Roland. No, no worries. No worries. When I started my company, I was, I was really afraid. <laughs> 10 years ago, will this work? And, and one, so I sent a letter to potential clients and one said, sent right away a letter back saying, don't be afraid, you will be successful. So maybe, maybe if you can buy the advices, maybe the top advice would be if you have clear goals, if you are honest to people, if you work hard, then you will reach whatever your goal is. You will absolutely be successful. The, the, you, you can't be unsuccessful then. 
clear goals, honest, be honest to people around you and to yourself as well and work hard. And of course, you have to be a little bit lucky uh, when lightning strikes or you have illness or whatever, there's nothing you can do about it. But if that's not the fact, then do these three things and you will be successful. So the flip side to that question is what's the worst piece of advice that you ever received or, or gave? I think in communication, especially in media, the worst advice that I ever had, like if the media takes the pick on you, you have to sit still. That's the most stupid thing you can do. If if the media or whatever, if there's an issue and they have the pick on you, start moving. Try to find the right direction, but start doing things instead of sitting still. You're not a sitting duck. What would those things be? In, in communication, I, I, I come across a lot of practices who have an issue with an owner or yeah. with the local newspaper or... Or maybe a review online, review something online like that. Or, that's a good one. Maybe a review online. They have a one-star review and they're completely pissed off because, oh, we have a one-star review. So don't get into uh, fight, uh, flight or freeze mode, but do something. So think of what's standing there and then engage. Go to the, say, hey, unfortunately, we thought that you gave us a one-star review and ask questions. Could you please tell us why you did that? Yeah. What the reason behind that is, because we want to improve. Yeah. We want you to have a better experience next time you come in. If you take it from yourself, always take communication from yourself. If I say, sometimes I say goodbye to clients because it's not my client, Dave. They are too demanding. They're, they're looking for things that I'm not willing to do because I think it's very important in our uh, profession that as a veterinarian, don't deliver the owner what he asks, but deliver what his animal needs. Yeah. So if they ask like all kind of testing or antibiotics and the animal doesn't need it, don't give it. That's your professional integrity. Sometimes they ask the same that the animal needs, so then it's quite easy. But please, you are the professional veterinary advisor. You should say, okay, I can imagine that, you know, always be nice and practical and clear, that you think that antibiotics will help in this. But is it okay if I explain to you that I think there's another way to get this fixed, which is better for the dog, better for you, better for everyone? And then 99 out of 100 times, you will flip this. Yeah. If I say goodbye to a client, I never, ever will blame the client. I will say to him or her, it doesn't happen a lot, maybe once a year, but uh, you know these clients, you know, your whole staff gets allergic reactions when they come in. Right. Uh, so I will phone them and I will say, every day we try to deliver the best veterinary care uh, according to the highest veterinary standards. And in your case, we seem not to succeed each time. And we're very sorry for that because... We really try to do our best to help you as good as we can. But we found out that we cannot fulfill the needs and the wants that you bring in when you come into clinic. And that's nothing to blame you, but I'll have a good advice for you. Maybe somewhere in the city, there's another vet who delivers the services and the wants and the, the things that you want. So please do me a favor. Go there and try and see if he can deliver where we what we can't. And we're very sorry for that. We tried, we tried, but I will never say you're, you're not a nice client, go away. You phrase it in this way, 50% will come back with a big uh, bucket of flowers saying, sorry, sorry, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> I'll be better behaved uh, in the future. Be, yeah, sorry. 
my husband always tell me that I'm grumpy, sorry, 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 but I react like that because I'm always very nervous when I'm with you, you know? Mm. They have an explanation and they, they, they come to the inside that they're not behaving well. And the other half will go away. And let me be honest, it's not your client. There, there's a saying in veterinary profession that everybody should be your client. Yeah, Client is king. No, not client is king. Your client is king. And please select and pick your own clients. Go for the market where you have added value that you like. If you don't like breeders, don't go into breeding. If they come in and ask for discounts, say to them, that's what I did because the breeders, I, I don't blame breeders. Breeders are great, but I don't have the click with them. If they come in and they say, can I get a discount rule on because I'm a breeder? I will say, no, you have to pay an extra bonus. And they will say, why? I say, yeah, you will cost me more time, more attention, more compassion, more care. So you have to pay more. And then it was, then I'll go to your colleague. He's cheaper. Yeah. If you find more comfortable for that, please go. <laughs> and I still have two breeders, Dave. Yeah. And they pay the extra money. Yeah. And they get the extra care. You have people cheering when they hear that advice. I think that's brilliant. Yeah. But only if you really, and don't look at the breeders. I looked at myself and I thought like, no, I'm not the breeder type, you know. I am a dog type. I am a cat. I'm also not a bird type, you know. If they come in with birds, I will say to them, I have a great advice for you. I have this vet friend. He's, he's a very good friend. He's specialized in birds and bees and, and snakes. And, and I'll make a call for you that you, <laughs> that you get uh, the, the, the five-star treatment because you come from our clinic. Please go there. <laughs> and, and, and although this is I, a master class, and Roland, although I, love I haven't provided them with veterinary care, I have helped them because I send them to the best place in the Netherlands to go if you have a bird. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. How about you? Do you have certain things that you don't like to treat? Yeah, I think anybody who mistreats my team, yeah, I really that's don't. A good one as well. I don't yeah. like yeah. people who are one thing to reception team and who are yeah. different to vets. That's a different value set. And it's a lot of clients, actually. So we, you have to educate those people. And I'd say I, it's easier for me to say what I really... I love dentistry. Yeah. I love the old crusty dogs. and But I, just, I love people who just love on their animals and who are willing to engage. Like if you're the person who wants to go in and out quickly then it would come as no surprise to any listeners that you and I are probably not going to get on. So I, I, I love forming relationships. So it's, the trouble is that's, that's everybody if you give them the chance, isn't it? Yeah, if you use the yeah. skills you talk about in your, in your book and we're discussing now. So I think that's the key to why I've loved it for as long as I have. And it makes you happy. I think this is very important for our listeners that pick something that really makes you work your own tail. You know, that you're 100%. so happy. For me, puppies. Oh, puppies. <laughs> when, when I do, when I open up my agenda for consultation and I see new puppies and my nurses know it, yeah, they try to, to book. They're the going to book you know my, Oh, puppies. I love them. I steal them. I cuddle them. I kiss them. I'm, I love puppies. For me, that's just every puppy consultation is for me is party kittens as well, but puppies. They're the best. Oh, I love them. They're great. And if, but if you give me those, those old crusty ones, when I, My practice in Australia, we looked after a, a wonderful rescue organization called Pause for Thought, and they would, I'm sure that Marika, the lady who ran it, would bring me the increasingly the most messed up cases she could find in the pound and deposit them on my table. And these animals had not had love. They'd found their way to the pound, who knows how. 
and they were broken and and our job in partnership was to fix them with yeah. medicine with TLC but to see the journey those animals went on was just yeah, that's great oh, so yeah. good so good and it's also good if you work in a team uh, that you what we as a team because I still work a bit on the practice what we will do is once in a while sit together and say what what gives you really energy so one of my vets she's really a cat advocate she's that's so a powerful question and and by doing that you can enable each other to do the things that they want to do. So if I say to her, hey, do you like doing my cats, for example, then let's make a cat consultation hour, and I'm not the vet of that. You can do that. You can have a whole day of cats. Would you like that? Especially in a, in a smaller group practice, you can just sit around the table and say, ah, oh, this makes me happy. This makes me happy. This makes me happy. And there's always an amount of work that nobody gets happy from, but you know that's in every job. Yeah, uh, things that have to be done. That would be an amazing team meeting just to sit around and and actually you could build your recruitment policy around it and say you know what gives you energy and what takes your energy yeah, and also the why the why so we call that why sessions yeah so what gives you energy and why and then the story behind that and that's great and then you start respecting the other one on that you think oh yeah now i know why this makes her happy i love it if you could give yourself one piece of advice back at graduation roland what would it be i wish i would have learned more on human skills on the human being yeah absolutely Yeah, I think it took me uh, five years to to find out that I need to know more about human beings. And then it took me another five years to really develop that. And then it took me another 15 years to put it into practice and write books about it. So it's been a long journey. And it's wonderful that you're now sharing all of this content with the rest of us. So hopefully others don't have that length of wait. So two last questions. What's the most controversial thing people don't know about you but matters? That deep inside of me, there's a carpenter. I love to do carpenting. You know, if I, if I could do it again. Build, building as opposed to sculpting? Yeah, building wooden things, building chairs, build, building tables. What's the what's the most fun you, thing you've built recently? Uh, I'm, now, I'm now working on a table. A table is called a table of eight with eight different woods of the Netherlands in a round table. Because... What I really do appreciate is real craftsmanship, you know? As a matter of fact, I'm now educated to be a master in carpentry, which will take me more than 20 years to get there, if I ever get there. But I have a master. I go there on the classes every Wednesday evening. And I think we should we should create a same system for veterinarians, that you have a master that looks down and, and helps you out and see the failures you're, you're about to make and, and let you make failures and say, yeah, if you had done it this way or that way. And uh, my master in carpentry, without saying anything, the way he looks at me, I know that I'm doing things right or not. And it works really well. There's always a good atmosphere, as a matter of fact. Two months ago, I reached the second level. I'm now not now the lowest level anymore. And it's just so great fun to develop craftsmanship, also as a veterinarian. So that's a secret. This is what's missing, isn't it? You know, I had great mentors. I have to say, this is rapidly turning into one of my favorite conversations because I feel like encased in our conversation are the keys, the lessons to being happy in, in, mm -hmm. in any career. You know, be clear about what you want, find mentors, masters, and have a focus. And you Pick will yourself be up and you'll be yeah. successful. Yeah. Roland, this has been 
just such a joy of a conversation. I mean, I had great expectations as anyone who follows me on Instagram will be will know about meeting same you. Same for me. I really enjoy talking to you, Dave. But you've you I far, think we're on the same page. Here. Oh, I, I yeah, think there's yeah, no yeah. doubt. You've far surpassed. Let's write a book. The, the, <laughs> let's write a book. I, I would be embarrassed almost to, to write a book with you, such as your knowledge. Um, and speaking of your book, so if you've enjoyed this conversation, Roland's book, Communication in Practice, is just a f- fantastic book that really will take you a lot deeper. You will learn, you will, you will gain skills. Cannot recommend it enough to you. Roland, where's the best place for people to go to pick up a copy of the book? To the website, www.communicationinpractice.com. And yeah, there you can order your copy. We'll link that up in the show notes as well. So www.communicationinpractice. And I have, um, for you, Dave, I have just a new thing that is now for the first time on air. The 9th of November, we will publish a new book. It's called The Cookbook in Clientrisism. 30 recipes to make clients happy amazing yeah written like a cookbook so recipes ingredients uh, preparation time everything's there it's it is in dutch but i hope one day it will be uh, translated to english you have as well. to translate you're gonna have to and get that in these english. are just easy recipes to make people happy in your clinic it's not rocket science for example just to give an example the client christmas tree Put up a Christmas tree around Christmas, fill it with all kinds of things for dogs and cats, invite people to come over, pick a present for their, uh, for their animal, and they are happy. That's the beginning of a new successful year of cooperation with this client. So the client Christmas tree and 29 other nice recipes. You're on a roll, sir. And um, what blessing it is to have you in, in the profession. Thank you for having me. I'm Thank really for grateful for you coming across here and keep on doing that. You know, the only thing is we're, we're going to have to have you back to talk about the client recipes as well in the new year. So listeners, friends, if you've enjoyed this conversation, it's been valuable to you. Let's put some pressure on Roland to come back across me. Yeah, to- or, you, you, or you come to Nijmegen. You're very welcome to come there. Yeah. I will take you up on that offer. If people want to get in touch with you, follow you on social, uh, I know you're you're not huge in the Instagram no, no, stakes, no, no. but where's no, the best? No. What's the best way for people to I reach out Facebook. to you and say thank you? Roland Wessel. There are two Roland Wessels in the world. Uh, one is in the Netherlands. That's me. The other one is in South Africa. Uh, he's not a family member, uh, not as I know. But pick the one in the Netherlands, and you're, uh, so you're it's you are connected. Facebook.com forward slash Roland Wessels. Yes. All right. And that's, again, we'll put a link to that on and, our and show notes. And if you have any questions on communication, you can go to the website of St. Anna Advice, which is the name of the, the company, www.anna, and then um, a minus, a minus sign, and then A-D-V-E-E-S dot N-L. Something like that. <laughs> Just Google Roland Wessels and you, you will find. You will find. Yeah. We're going to make it really easy for people. There's something the show notes. wrong in my personal communication here. Yeah. Yeah. The show yeah. notes. Yeah. The show notes will have it. It was all going so well until that moment. The show notes will have all of these links in there and you'll find Roland. But I'm, I know you'll agree in, in reaching out to him and thanking him for a wonderful, wonderful session spent together. Roland. Yeah, absolute Thank pleasure. You very much. And to all the listeners, I would like to say, enjoy our beautiful profession every day. Hell yeah, I second that. So, folks.
Folks, just me again. Did you enjoy the show? I really hope you did. Wasn't Roland a magnificent guest? Don't forget to shout him out on social or email and just say hi and thanks for being on. Now, if you like the show, please don't forget to leave a rating on iTunes. Uh, your feedback is awesome. It helps us get up the iTunes charts and it also gives us feedback that we're doing a good job for you and encouragement to keep making more episodes in the future. If there's guests you want to see, please hit me up. Instagram at Dr. Dave Nickel or Facebook book at Dr. Dave Nickel. Until the next episode of Blunt Dissection, be safe, be well, be happy. Dr. Dave out. Dr. Dave out.